Let's open our Bibles to the book of Colossians. We are in a series that we're calling The Supremacy, Sufficiency of Jesus. Uh, Jesus is more than enough. And this is a group of people that the Apostle Paul had never met. They actually became Christians because a man named Epaphras had heard the gospel in Ephesus about 80 miles away, uh, had grown in his faith in Christ, went back to Colossae, uh, uh, and he uh, began to share the gospel. And people began to get saved. A church was born. But at this church, there were some, uh, all kinds of religious, you know, backgrounds uh, in the city, and uh, it was a major trade route, so there's just lots of, uh, you know, religions sort of colliding and merging, and what was happening was some blending of different religious ideas, some legalism, uh, some thoughts about Jesus not being the Son of God or being God. He was just like a, you know, a good prominent person, but not preeminent, and, and so Paul's going to correct that, and really the idea is that Jesus would be preeminent and everything. That's what we're looking at this morning, starting in chapter 1, verse 15. I think about like my own journey as, as a Christian, and, and what I realize is that uh, my great need is that I, I, want, I want God more in my life, but I also want to want him more. Maybe you feel like that. You say, man, I, I know my life would be so much grander uh, if, if, if I actually had such a, a deeper connection with who God is. And it's okay to actually acknowledge, God, I also want to want you more because I recognize in this world with all kinds of options, I don't want you the way I should want you, right? When we get a, a, a greater, truer picture of who Jesus is that Paul gives us uh, in the book of Colossians, we begin to see the greatness of Jesus. It's amazing how the problems that we're dealing with begin to diminish a little bit. They get a little smaller, uh, the choice to serve him or to live for myself becomes an easier choice because you look at the greatness and the, and the, the supremacy of who Jesus is. I think about a, a story in the, um, uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, it was a story of, uh, in Prince Caspian where Lucy has a conversation as she sees uh, Aslan again. And, and she says to him, Aslan, you look bigger. Uh, and, and he says to her, that's because you're older, little one. And she says, not because you are. And he says, no, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. I've found that as I pursue Jesus in his word, as I seek to know him, as I, as I make some of those decisions of like, you know, am I going to live for my flesh this day or am I going to put Jesus first in my life, that he becomes grander in my life. And I'm telling you, the, the ones who are living at the highest level, you know, they're living their best life now. Not like, you know, like, oh, I'm on a flight to the Maldives or, you know, I'm, I'm doing this or look at this. Look at this. I bought, you know, uh, I bought, uh, um, what's that, uh, Bitcoin. I bought Bitcoin when it was 20 cents. Like, wouldn't that be great? I mean, if we're dishonest, that would have been really great. People who are living that great life are ones who are just like totally sold out in love with Jesus Christ. And that happens when you and I get a bigger viewer of who he is. Paul had shared his prayer for the church, but he ended in verse 13 and 14 about what Christ had done for us in saving us when he went to the cross for us, the, the work of Jesus on our behalf as Savior. And then what looks to be almost like a hymn, and some actually believe that it was a hymn the church had early on from this letter to the uh, church of, of the Colossians because it tells the story of who Jesus is. The central message of it to this church is that Jesus is enough. He's the preeminent one. 
Even though the false teachers were trying to diminish him and dethrone him, his true nature, Paul shares the truth about Jesus, declaring that he is the preeminent one in everything. The false teachers would say he's good, he's prominent, but he's not preeminent. He's not first. He's not the greatest. And so we look to the scripture to see uh, what does the Bible say. He stands out among all others because of his superiority. So Paul begins to describe Everything concerning the, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And we'll look at the three areas that Paul actually mentions here. Uh, he's supreme in creation. He's uh, supreme as the head of the church. And he's supreme as the redeemer of everything. So Paul says in verse 15, he says about Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Here Paul describes Jesus as he's the supreme one. And he begins with number one, he's the supreme one in creation. Paul says he's the image of the invisible God. Uh, the best way to think about it is like if someone would take a photograph of you. It's the real you. It's a picture of you so that we can know what you look like. Uh, his character, his nature as God, it's been perfectly revealed in Jesus Christ. Uh, John, the, the, uh, uh, the disciple, he begins his, his, le- his book, the Gospel of John, with the same kind of uh, understanding. In the beginning was the Word. The Word is a, a, another word for Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Fast forward to verse 14 of John chapter 1. He says, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, or dwelt among us. The author of Hebrews says this, long ago God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. God promised everything to the son as an inheritance. And through the son, he created the universe. The son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. When he has cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majesty of God in heaven. John also says in chapter one, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God is near to the father's heart. He has revealed God to us. Here, Paul is telling us, that Jesus is supreme in creation. He's not a created being, which uh, a lot of uh, f- uh, false 
um, you know, uh, false religions would teach that Jesus is a good man. He was a created person. You know, he was like one of God the Father's creations. No, no, no. What Paul is telling us here is that Jesus is above everything else because he was never created. He's always existed as God. He's part of the triune being, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And he's the perfect picture of who God is. Jesus is God with a human body. That's what the incarnation is all about. That's why we celebrate Christmas, that God became a man. There was a, a little kid that was trying to talk to his mom about like, hey, you know, is, is God up there in the heavens? Is that where God is? And she says, yes. And he says, wouldn't it be good if he could just sort of pop out his head so that we could see him? Right? Have you ever wondered that? Well, that's exactly what happened 2,000 years ago. Is it how do, how do we understand an invisible God that we can't see, we can't touch? Well, he, he declared who he is in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. He sent his son to be uh, in this world to declare who God is. And when he says he's the firstborn over all creation, Jesus is not the first of created beings as in time. What this word is referring to is it first in its place or prominence. Firstborn has been uh, misunderstood by lots of different religions. Uh, the Jehovah Witness believe uh, and teach that Jesus was created. Uh, but what here Paul is saying is that he's before all things and he's the creator of all things in verse 16 and 17. So Jesus is eternal, so he can't be a created being. It means first in priority or rank and that there's no one above him. It means he's set apart from all creation. He's supreme in creation. He's unique. He's both prior to and supreme over everything that's been created. The highest honor belongs to him. And in verse 16, his unique position is explained because by him all things were created. We read in the book of Genesis that God spoke things in, uh, into, into existence. Jesus was the agent uh, of which everything that you and I know and experience was created. All things are created, uh, and they're all subject to him. And then he describes, uh, you know, all these, you know, things that are, whether, uh, you know, the things in the heavens or the things on earth, uh, it describes all the unseen world that you and I, um, we feel, but we can actually see, right? Uh, talking about the four classes of the spiritual realm, the f- from the lowest to the highest. And Paul says that they were created through him, and they were created for him. That's what everything was created. We were made. All of this was made for God. Guess what? And that includes you. You were made for God. This is why people that try to live their lives in this sort of self-determined way. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to be a self-made woman or a self-made man. That they never find that ultimate satisfaction, that thirst quenched in their soul, that they have to keep chasing after everything else. Why isn't life making sense? It's because you're trying to do it without the one who made you, who knows how your life should work the best. Some people don't like that. You were made for God. You were made to glorify God. Well, I don't want to glorify God. I don't want to know God. You know the great thing about creation is that he created you with the ability to have a choice, right? He created you in the same way, you, know, you and I are made in the image of God, not in the same way that Jesus is the exact image of God, but we have some of the qualities of God, right? We, uh, we have this gift to be self-determined beings. You can choose what you want to do with your life. 
You can choose to live a life that is honoring him and glorifying him, or you can choose a life that's just after the things that you want. Uh, We have the power to choose. And by the way, that's necessary for relationship. If God created us as robots, right, where he just sort of programmed you and I in, that we woke up at 7 a.m., we just lifted up our hands and praised him, we opened our Bibles and we said, amen, this is beautiful, and we walked outside and we just served people and loved people and forgave people because it was just sort of programmed in our DNA, that's not a relationship, right? That would just be robotic. You think about why would, um, why would God, have you ever thought about this? Why did God have a tree in the Garden of Eden that, that Adam and Eve could so jack up this world because of? You know what I mean? It's like, you know those little hidden you know, camera shows where like they leave a cookie and they say, now don't eat this cookie, I'm going to leave right now. You know what I mean? It's just like that little naughty boy, of course he's going to eat the cookie. Why was there a tree in the Garden that had potential to completely derail creation. Because how do you know if it's a loving, meaningful relationship without the ability to choose something else? Think about Adam and Eve. There's a story about how Adam and Eve wrote her a little card. It was the first Hallmark card. It says, Eve, you're so beautiful. I just want you to know you're the only woman for me. Like, you know, do you mean that, like, figuratively, Adam? Or, like, I guess it works for literally, right? <laughs> like, if everyone died on the planet and you alone were left and there's a girl and, and, she's, and you're just like, you're the only woman for me. She's like, well, everyone died. I guess it's so romantic. You need the choice. If you exercise the choice to live for him, to have a surrendered life, to, to seek to know him every day, to put him first, to, to, to like attempt to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. You'll lead a rich, full, not without problems, but a rich and full, satisfying life. You can also exercise your choice to live for yourself and the pleasures of this temporary world, and you'll end up empty and frustrated, and it will be a futile existence. But you have the ability to choose. You are made for him. In verse 17, it says he was before all things. It speaks of Jesus' eternal nature. Why is this stuff important? It's important because from the beginning, false teachers have tried to, and Satan has tried to discount who Jesus Christ is. Like, is he a created being or is he the eternal son of God? Because if he's not eternal and he's not God uh, from the very beginning, then guess what? He can't cancel out your sin. He can't represent both God, who's holy, and human beings, though he's never sinned, and actually die in your place. That's why this is really important. In the beginning, God, the book of Genesis begins Jesus is the self-existent one. And that's why the incarnation, according to what Paul is teaching, is real. God became a man. He took on a human nature. Jesus has always existed. He's not a created being, but he is the one who created all things. And it says, and in him, all things hold together. Uh, I read that Hebrews chapter one, verse three, it says, and he sustains everything by his mighty power of his command. Everything in this universe is sustained because of Jesus. If he were to let go this whole 
existence would explode. It would just fall apart to think about that as he was hanging on the cross. He was still the sustainer of every cell and every fiber in your body and everything in this entire universe. But then he shifts in verse 18 and it begins, he's not just supreme in creation, he's supreme in the church, number two, as head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus is the central part of the church. It describes the personal and living relationship with him. Uh, He's the ruler over the church. We, as the the body of Christ, are completely dependent upon him as the head and the leader. When it says that he's the firstborn from the dead, it speaks of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And by the way, because he rose from the dead, it guarantees your resurrection one day in eternity, that you and I also will rise, never to face death again, and spend eternity with him. He is first in everything. Preeminent is what Paul is saying and what God is desiring for all of our lives is that he might be first. He might be the supreme one in our lives. The purpose and plan of God is that he would be preeminent in all things. And again, that includes you and includes me. It's a great wrestling match that I've had to do this week, and I, and I hope you'll join me in wrestling with this as well. It's asking the question, does Jesus reign as preeminent first in my life and my heart? Something you think about and you go, of course, in a church service, we would say, yes, amen, Jesus is preeminent. But is he above all else? In our lives, think about the choices that you and I make. Think about the things that we uh, spend our time doing. Is he first? Or nothing supersedes that highest place in our lives. And not just affirming it, but with an actual, like, attempt every day to say, God, I want you to be first in my life. The reality is that many people who claim to be a, a Christian, it's not the reality for them. Right? If you can think of someone right now, shout their name. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. (laughs) Listen, it's not our place to judge another. Paul, you've talked about that to the Corinthian church. He goes, what do I have to, what what is my place to judge another? God will judge them. But he talked about judging his own life, right? Like, uh, get your own side of the street cleaned, if you would. Like, focus on you this morning. And not examine another's commitment, but man, to examine my own commitment. Like in reality, Lord, are you really first? You know, the church in Ephesus, uh, they, they uh, you know, we can read about how they began. And, the, and look how impactful that church was. This church 80 miles away uh, became in, came into existence because of what God was doing in Ephesus. And Ephesus, he just they had it down. But in the book of Revelation, Jesus wrote seven letters to seven churches, specifically one to the church of Ephesus. And you know what he nailed? He said, guys, you're killing it doctrinally. You're not putting up with any of this false garbage coming in, trying to diminish the work of Jesus or elevate the work of man, saying, like, you can do this and God will accept you and you'll have his favor. You can sort of meet the Lord halfway, if you would. With your effort and God's work on the cross, now you could be a saved person. He's like, you guys are not putting up with any of that garbage coming your way. They were the kind of church that they would write books about today and say, wow, they are killing it. Conferences would be built around this uh, church. 
But Jesus says, nevertheless, I have this against you. He says, you have left your first love. We would go to that church and say, wow, they really love God. They're singing all the songs that are true and right about God. But Jesus looks deeper into their heart. And he can see that there's a lot of lip service and a lot of external mechanical things about their Christianity that slowly was eroding away this loving fellowship that they had with God. That's what God's after, friend. That he might be first in your life, and not in a way where you, it's all this religious checking off the boxes, but beginning at that just that heart level. Lord, the only thing I really want out of life is to know you and walk with you. And today, God, I want, I want you to be first in my life. Yesterday, I was a jacked up mess. That's okay. That's what it means to actually say, God, I want you to be first. It's to acknowledge, Lord, I totally just fleshed out yesterday. God, I totally just uh, put off the things I knew that were right and important. And this is what I allowed my day to become. Lord, I want you to forgive me for that. That's what it means to pursue the Lord like that. He's supreme in the church. He's supreme in creation. And then lastly, he's supreme in the work of redemption. As God, he reconciled all things to himself. That's what he tells us in verse 19. He says, for in him all the fullness of God dwells, or was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The reason why he is supreme is because in him all the fullness of God exists. It contradicted what they were trying to teach about Jesus, that he wasn't God, that he was, you know, a little lower. In fact, they were trying to put Jesus on equal footing with other uh, different created beings, including the worship of angels that he'll deal with in chapter 3 or chapter 2 at the last part, or even taking Jesus a little bit lower than other, uh, you know, spiritual beings than, than, uh, than Jesus is. But all God's qualities and characters dwell in him. And because Jesus is more than a man, he's the one that can actually save us and forgive us. And through Jesus, it says in verse 20, reconciling all things. Gang, there's no other way to be saved other than what Jesus went to do for us 2,000 years ago on the cross. There's a lot of people that think, uh, in fact, when I was, a, before I was, a, I was sort of, I guess, a pre-Christian, uh, somebody asked me if I was to die, would I go to heaven? And I'm like, um, of course I'll go to heaven, because in my mind, I was doing a better job at sort of living the better life, the good life, than a lot of other people, right? Uh, you could think of anyone that's worse than you. And of course, you can think of people better than you, right? During that time, that was about the time uh, when the serial killers were kind of everywhere, right? Jeffrey Dahmer was like, I guess, making his, you know, debut back in those days when that guy asked me that question. I'm like, well, I'm better than that guy, right? Would you guys at least agree with me on that? Thank you. <laughs> There's no other way. He asked me, he said, hey, uh, are you born again? I'm like, what the heck are you talking about? In my mind, I was thinking, if I try hard enough, God will accept me. You ask people like, hey, how do you know you're going to go to heaven when you die? Well, I try to keep the Ten Commandments. Really? Do you know every one of us is broken if not the, the, uh, the actual commands, the Ten Commandments, if not the spirit of the commands, 
well, I've never killed anybody, but have you ever, would you be happy if you found out somebody did die? Like, mm. have you ever been so angry with a person that you wouldn't go kill them because you'll get suspended or punch them in the face because you'll get in trouble, kicked off the team, or you won't be able to go to work the next day? That's the same attitude of murder, according to Jesus. Oh, you got me on that one, Jesus. Well, I've never committed adultery. Uh-oh. Then Jesus is like, but I tell you, if you've had a lustful thought in your heart towards another person, you've already committed adultery in your heart. It's two. You can go all the way down, all 10. The Jews had 613 laws that they had sort of formulated. All of that, you can't do it. No one can do it. There's no one good, Paul says. No, not one. The only way you and I can be saved is through what Paul says here, making peace by the blood of his cross. The blood of Jesus that was shed for my sins is enough to cleanse the entire world of sin to all who actually call upon him. Through the cross, God provides the basis for he himself to forgive me. And then Paul takes it from this high and lofty doctrinal conversation all the way to uh, Colossae and also Fresno. He says, and to you, Christ's peacemaking role in our lives. His death allows God's enemies, this is what reconciliation means. It allows God's enemies to become his friends. It removes the hostility and restores friendly relationship between two parties. That's what reconciliation is. That's what countries after a war, they, they form a, a treaty. That's what reconciliation is. We were fighting each other uh, last week. Today, we are now on friendly terms. In this case, it's between us and God. Our sin and rebellion is what separated from us from God. It caused us to live in hostility to God. We were alienated. We were at odds with him and separated from God. And Jesus paid the price. And Paul says the outcome is salvation and forgiveness and now peace with God. And now we stand blameless before God. Isn't that nuts? I look at my failures. I look at the things that I struggle with. I see my flaws and my weaknesses. But according to Paul, God sees you and I as righteous and holy. Isn't that crazy to think like that? I know that practically I still have struggles and I still sin. But positionally, when God sees a Christian, they see them in Christ. If you have given your life to Jesus Christ, God sees you as perfect and holy, and he will carry you all the way through into eternity and present you to the Father as blameless and pure. That's what Jesus did on the cross. And when Paul says in verse 23, <clears throat> If indeed you continue in the faith, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. It wasn't a, um, it's kind of a tricky question because a lot of people will look at that and saying, see, if you don't do your part, well, then God's going to go like, you know, hey, I liked your, um, I liked your first round, but hey, this round is not good. You, you know, and your audition is good, but your second couple songs, no good. That's not the way it works. 
It's a word that actually also means since. And what Paul is doing is not trying to cast doubt on them as if our eternal salvation depends on us. It's a, a vote of confidence. Since you remain, he's confident that they won't be swayed by these false teachers that are coming in. Our part is to continue in the faith, to keep growing, to keep, uh, you know, putting Jesus as a preeminent one in our life, that he might be preeminent in everything, to remain true to the gospel, not shifting from what we believe. You know, I thought about this week, is it, chances are that none of us are going to be swayed. Our young people going to college, they might be swayed to say like, hey, you know, there's no beer in heaven, so party up. That might be true. But none of us are going to probably go, you know, oh, my Jehovah Witness friend, they've convinced me that Jesus is not the son of God. He's not Jehovah God, uh, and that there's, there's one God, and, and now i got to go and talk to people on Saturday morning somewhere. Like, that's probably not going to happen. Uh, chances are you're not going to actually be um, persuaded to, to think that Jesus is not the son of God. Uh, I would imagine that nobody in this room, or at least uh, most of us in this room, that's not going to be the case. But is there a danger for us? Yeah. We might believe that Jesus is enough for our salvation, but is he enough for our happiness? Is he enough? uh, He can secure my eternal destiny, right? But is it up to me to take care of my life and actually go, well, Lord, You took care of my salvation. I got it from here. Is he enough for my peace of mind? Is he enough for me to trust him with my future? I think those are the kinds of things that we might wrestle with more. As we wrap up today, I want you to think about this. Is he preeminent today in our lives? I think every so often it's okay for us to go, Lord, Am I slowly allowing this culture and this world to sort of diminish my love for you? I've been a Christian now for a lot of years. I'm not good at math when I was young, and I'm definitely not good at math at 52 on stage without my calculator. Oh, and it'll be next week, October 5th, 1988. Someone real quick, do the math. What is that, 32 years, 34 years? 34 years, there we go. Dang, why did I get a D minus in algebra two? What I've noticed in my years as a Christian is my own ability to sort of drift and fade, even in my role as a pastor. There's an old hymn says that it was singing, um, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's a true statement, I think, that we all might go, yeah, man, I can actually see how I'm drifting away from first love relationship with God. I've watched friends that I thought would never wander from their faith or at least wander off where Christ isn't first in their life, making decisions that you just go like, like, what in the bleep are you thinking I mean, like, literally right now, I'm going, like, are you freaking kidding me? Like, what's going on? And you could just go, it's slow, man. You know, I told the men, ladies, we had 18 guys. If you can't beat that on this Wednesday night, I hope you can make it out. But we set the bar high. 18 of us were there. So we'd love to see a little bit more ladies at that one this Wednesday night. I told the guys, I said, Satan is patient. 
He's studied humanity for years, centuries. He's patient with you. He was, he's just waiting for his open opportunity. Got a little busier at work. Kids came. I'm not saying Satan gave you kids. God gave you kids. I know sometimes it might feel like that. <laughs> Get behind me, Satan, like, I'm your child. Okay, you can't do that. You got to raise him. I'm too busy for a walk with God. No, you need to shift and adjust. When I meet with couples and they say, like, we're too busy to date, I'm like, no, you need to shift and adjust. You got to have priorities. Your walk with God has got to be primary because the greatest thing you'll ever have in life is your walk with Jesus. It'll be the best thing you'll ever take into heaven is your relationship with him. Is my relationship with God my number one priority? If it's not, here's the great news. Like Gabriel and the archangel Michael, they're not waiting outside going like, wait till they come out of church. They just heard that message. We're going to bust them up. Flat tire on the way home. If you get a flat tire on the way home, don't like email me. Go like, you, why'd you do this? Why'd you give Gabriel that idea? That's not how it works in God's economy of stuff. What you do is you say, God, I just want to acknowledge the reality. You're not first in my life. But that's where he wants to be. Why would God want to be first in your life? Is it because he is a big ego? You know, where he's like adding up, how many followers do I have today? How many people liked my picture? That's not how it works with God. He's fine. By the way, the triune, didn't, God didn't create us because he was lonely. Perfect fellowship and harmony with the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. You know who has the best life because Jesus is first? You. You don't have to read a marriage book. I'd encourage you to do it. But you don't have to read one to have a better marriage. Begin to put Jesus Christ first in your life, and I promise you, you will begin to shift and change as a spouse. You don't have to. The most important thing you could do is make him first. Have you left your first love? His desire is to be first in everything, that you and I might live an abundant life is what Jesus described. Experiencing that, that happens when you and I recenter our lives with what we know to be right and accurate. And what Paul is telling us here is that he might be first in everything. He was going to close right now, and team's going to come and lead us in a song of worship. This is the time to do a little business with God. Say, Lord, I just want to acknowledge that you're not first. I got a lot of other priorities, but I want to make you first. And then do it. Make this week your best time with God. At lunchtime, get up in that little extra early. Turn the TV off maybe a little earlier at night. And just say, Lord, I really need to spend some time with you. Go out on a walk with Jesus and talk to him. If you've got a household that's just impacted with people, man, it might be out in your backyard is your best place to just meet with God. Even just five or 10 minutes with your Bible open saying, God, I want to learn how to know you better. I promise you God will meet you there and it will be the beginning of the best adventure you've ever lived in your entire life. Are you allowing anything to compete for him being number one in your life? Surrender it this morning. As we worship God, I just commit this in your hands. I don't want this to be my priority. I want you to be my priority. Maybe you need to give your life to Jesus. We talk about him being preeminent in our life and first in our life. Have you surrendered your life to him? Do you know him personally? If you were to answer this question, if I were to die today, do I know for certain I would go to heaven? 
If your answer is, well, I'm trying hard and I'm trying to live a good life, well, then you don't have that assurance. What we read in Scripture, that we read this morning, is that, is that through the blood of his cross, him going on that cross 2,000 years ago, he paid for your sins as if you, as if he is the one who actually committed the sins that you have committed against God. If you think that you can earn your way to heaven, you're wrong. It's impossible to do that. Paul says that God made him who never sinned to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. An exchange happens at the cross. All of God's righteousness and goodness is given to the one who confesses Jesus as Savior when all of their sin was placed on Jesus on the cross. How do, I, how do I become a Christian? Well, you surrender to him. You acknowledge to him, admit to him that you're a sinner, you've broken his commands. And then you ask for him to forgive you. And you willingly turn from your sins and your old life. You believe that Christ died on the cross for your sins, and then you receive him into your life and into your heart by faith. It's not about believing a list of creeds or, you know, reciting a a creed. It's about committing your life to the living God. We certainly have to know the truth about what God says in his word, but it's about saying, God, I want relationship with you. You know, we're going to pray right now, and then we're going to sing a a last song of worship. But if, if today you're ready to commit your life to Jesus, right where you're sitting, you could tell God what you want him to do in your life. As I encourage all the rest of us to say, Lord, here's an area that I need to surrender to you. Here's something competing for number one in my heart. And God, I want to I put it in its proper place and put you properly on the throne of my heart. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day, God. Thank you for giving us this opportunity, Lord, to open your word. Lord, we certainly navigated through some uh, windy roads, if you would, Um, theologically this morning, God. This might be one of the most theologically dense sections of scriptures, and I'm grateful that, Lord, you let me wrestle with that with my friends this morning. Lord, ultimately, we know, God, the best life we could ever live is lived sold out for you. Would you cleanse us of our sins, God? Cleanse us of our, our messed up priorities. Lord, that we might know you, that we might know you more. God, that we might hunger for you more. Lord, I pray for my young friends here today, God, as they, as they try to navigate life as a student in college or in high school or in junior high. Lord, thinking of all the distractions and all the temptations that they face. God, would you cover them today, Lord, as they seek to put you first, God. May they put you first in every walk of their life. God, may you help each and every one of us, God, to put you first today. Lord, I also pray for those who may be here this morning, may be watching or listening, that they don't know you yet. God, they don't have a relationship with you. But Lord, they want one. They want their sins forgiven. They want to begin a relationship with you today. Lord, maybe they want to come back to you. Lord, I pray that you'd bless them, God, right where they're sitting, Lord, that you would do a great work, a great work of a miracle in their heart, Lord, as they confess to you, Lord, their desire to walk with you and know you. Friends, with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you, if you were here this morning and, and you say, hey, today I'm ready to surrender to God. I want my sins forgiven. I want to pray for you right where you're sitting. I just want you to lift up your hand, put it up real quick, and then you can put it back down. If today you're ready to surrender to him, God bless you, man. Anybody else? God bless you. Anybody else? 
Today's your day. Maybe you're coming back to him. Maybe you're going to give your life to him for the first time. Anybody else this morning? Man, he loves each and every one of us. Each and every one of you today. God bless you, man. Anybody else? Listen, for those of you that just say, man, today I'm ready to surrender my life. You know, I'm coming back to the Lord. I'm going to pray a prayer up here, and and there's really nothing magical about this prayer other than just telling God really what you want him to do in your life. I'm going to pray it up here. You pray it where you're sitting today. And the Bible says when you and I confess to him, he's going to come into our life, and he's going to change us and make us new this morning. Pray after me now. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner, and Lord, today I ask for your forgiveness. Lord, I believe that you died for my sins and you rose from the dead. Today I trust and I choose to follow you as my Lord and Savior. Lord, guide my life and help me to do your will from this day forward. God, help me to allow you to be first in my life, first in everything, that I might experience the life that you've promised, Lord, abundant life. Thank you, Lord, for your love today. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.